Welcome to another episode of the Oliver Shira Show, and here's your host, Oliver Shira. And on the other side of the virtual talk we have here is Alf Kö. Is that right pronounced? Uh, Kio, Oliver, Kio. Oh, yeah, you're Irish, right? That's right. So I'm Swiss, so we're not used to that. <laughs> um, I know Alf from my time at Siemens, which was very short, and my wife has been working much longer in Siemens uh, Wind Power. Gamesa now and she's always been talking highly from Alf I mean there were like four or five people she talked about and Alf was probably <laughs> the first to be mentioned so I was so pleased when he reached out to me uh, about his book which was launched on the 7th of April yeah. and I was so lucky to get a Kindle version and we want to talk about it so great welcome Alf <laughs> Thanks, Oliver. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I do know Siemens and Siemens Gamesa quite well. I know pretty much all of the renewable energy companies. You know, as a consultant, uh, I've done a, a lot of work uh, in the renewable energy area. So it's you know, it, it's something that's that's pretty close to my heart. I know a lot of people uh, in that business, and yeah, Oliver, it's great to have the opportunity to talk to you today. Yes. So um, <clears throat> now. I've seen on LinkedIn, you've been director from Siemens. You have your own consultancy company. So what I ask my guests normally is to kind of get an introduction. Who are we talking about? So what are three things you are known for? I mean, that can be privately or business. I mean, some people say there's no work-life balance. There's life-life balance because you're a person. <laughs> so who are you? Like three things. To describe. Well, I don't, know. I don't know about three, maybe I can do 20. <laughs> <laughs> no, just a little bit of background about me. Uh, I mean, my, my career, if you can call it that, has been a little bit unusual. Uh, I left school very early. I left school at uh, 15, no qualifications. Uh, I started working in factories. Uh, I did all kinds of work in my time. And all of my education... Um, basically has happened after dark. Uh, I went to night school to do what in Great Britain at that time, called A-levels. And then I spent four years going to uh, the University of London, again in the evening. And then I spent two years in London doing a master's degree. I studied psychology, then I studied um, something that's very popular now, artificial intelligence. Uh, this is a good few years ago when it was more theoretical than practical. But I think we're seeing the benefits of, of that coming out now. Uh, so I had that kind of background, and I did join a, a large, uh, a large company. Uh, and I guess I started late in, in the professional career. I was pretty well into my thirties, um, but I came with a very different set of experiences from different types of work. Um, and you know, I, I guess that at some point in my life, I thought that would be a hindrance. But actually, when I when I reflect on it now, it was probably probably an advantage to have these type of experiences. And I did pretty well in in a corporate career. But I, you know, I, I'm not really, and I, I guess lots of people say this, I'm not maybe a great corporate fit. But I found it very useful to 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 spend uh, a number of years in that environment. You know, it's 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 a great learning environment you can get stuff done you've got all of these resources behind you so you know i really enjoyed my time with siemens and it's still a company that uh, i've got a lot of affection for and i've got a lot of friends uh, working for that company 
I decided to set up on my own uh, about 15 years ago now, about 2004, 2005. And um, there was no push in that direction. It wasn't something I had to do. It was simply something I wanted to do. I wanted to get a feeling of independence. I, I wanted to take an opportunity to go out there and do something on my own, uh, which I did. Um, and it's worked out very well. Um, and I've spent 15 years, I've worked probably across 50 countries around the world. Um, do I specialize? Well, I specialize in, in human performance. So I, I do coaching. I, I coach teams and individuals. I um, do leadership development. I'm very interested in early leadership development as well. I've done a lot of work on, on something that's becoming I guess very popular and very important, and that is the whole notion of purpose in, in leadership and purpose in organizations. And I've worked with, with uh, quite a few blue chip companies, you know, from China to, to the US, from the US up to Sweden, wherever, uh, on the topic of purpose. Uh, so yeah, I, 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 I enjoy the, 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 the whole business of, of uh, performance in organizations and, and really helping people how they can um, increase their own performance and indeed that of their teammates as well. Okay. Now, so, privately, uh, something that people might not know about me, uh, I'm a marathon runner. I started marathon running quite late. Uh, so I just decided to do it and I did it. So I think this idea of, of deciding to do stuff and getting it done is, is, is something that's, that's uh, pretty, uh, what's the word I want to use? That, you know, it, it is an identifying factor, I think, in my life. You know, if I want to go to night school, I go to night school, I get it done. If I want to run a marathon, yeah, well, I started in New York. I did it there. I've completed another one this year in Lisbon. I wanted to do London this year, but it got canceled. And then I, I guess my final piece of getting stuff done was I decided to write a book and I did it in 90 days. Um, and I was really proud of that. And, and you know, it, it, it's not a book on research or on theory. It, it's very much a, a book on my thoughts, on my experiences over, you know, 25 years in business, working in the area of human performance and trying to get that down in some kind of a legible way. Um, so what else? So that's the second thing, I guess. And I probably some people don't know. I used to be a sports parachutist in my time. So there is some aspect of risk taking about my personality. Um, I can't remember how many jumps I did, but it's, you know, I don't know, something around 20, something like that. Uh, but that's a good few years ago. So well, that's okay. what I do now. So, uh, when was your first marathon? Uh, it was actually, it, it was a really strange story. Uh, I was working for a bank in the Netherlands and the HR director I was talking to one day and she said to me, uh, you know, I was a consultant, so I wasn't an employee. Uh, we were in a bar, we completed a program and um, we were having a drink and then some, you know, she said to me, oh, you look like a fit guy. And I was like, yeah, sure, really fit, da, 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 da. Anyway, this was a lead up to an invitation to join their charity team for the New York Marathon, which I did. Now, when I said yes to that, I, I never really imagined it would happen. But then, you know, 
a week later, I started getting emails from the New York Runners Club who run the marathon, and suddenly I was in there, and then I had to do it. So I did it. Um, uh, and it's, it's, it's quite an addictive thing when you start running long distance. Um, it kind of stays with you. It's, it's, uh, it's a very special feeling. And um, I'm not the kind of a guy to do something once and then give it up. So I've repeated it once again. And I intend now to do one or two per year. Okay, but uh, is it like two, three years ago or 10 years? Oh, sorry. It was 2018. Yeah, two years. Oh! New York, yeah. So you're the second one I know which has been starting marathon. I think the last one I know did 2019 the first time. Also yeah, in well, his 40s. Um, yeah. Well, I'm not that old. No, no. I mean, you, you said you're in the 30s, right? <laughs> so I still have time. Um, my running is momentarily, momentarily put on ice because for three years I have pain in my heel when I run. But I do creative visualization and body-mind control and Good. hope that will hurt, work because anything else didn't work. Uh, <laughs> to go into woo-hoo-hoo-hoo. So if I round up the three things, you are definitely a guy which decides to do it and then goes for it and you keep mm -hmm. on doing it, try to improve. You, you, you like sports, uh, I can see, and you enjoy the business and the human performance uh, stuff. And um, another warm-up question to make you really relaxed. Uh, <laughs> if you would be a new color in a color box, what color would that be and why? If, if I was a color in a coloring box? Yes, like a new pencil, crayon. Oh, I don't know. Uh, purple? Purple. Oh. Why would that be? I don't really know. Um... It's, uh, well, it's a pretty standout color. It's a pretty unusual color. Uh, it's a pretty in-your-face color. And, you know, it, it draws attention. Okay. That's how you feel? <laughs> well, I, I wouldn't go for a kind of gray. You know, I, I'm, not, I'm not somebody who's, who's, um, who wants to fit in all the time. Uh, I think there, there's something to be said for people in life and in organizations uh, who ask questions and, and who can be a bit irritating. And, um, yeah, I think it was George Bernard Shaw once said that um, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. If we were all reasonable, we wouldn't, we wouldn't go forward. So, you know, George Bernard Shaw being an Irish playwright, that kind of stayed in my mind from school days so that that it's not a it's not a, a thing of being disagreeable it's not a, it's not something about being you know being stupid with people it's it, it's healthy constructive discussion that i think many organizations don't engage in to to a sufficient extent yeah so you already answered the next two questions i have like uh <laughs> something not many people know, and that's definitely the parachute and the marathon, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, do you have anything else that people don't know about you? Oh, God, yeah, sure. Loads of stuff, but I'm not telling you. <laughs> okay, <laughs> good. So, no, I'm a reader. I, I read a lot, Oliver. I, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm challenged by the, the conversion to video these days. And, you know, don't get me wrong. I, I like movies, all that stuff. But I hope we don't lose reading. 
as a you know as a people uh, I grew up with reading um, and I think that's very important I think it's very important for children as well you know this active process and of course with the internet now and with video and all of that you know it, it's 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 sometimes very passive receptivity by, by by people by children you know answer a question go to Wikipedia whatever I just find it's it's it, 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 there's a superficial aspect that's quite dangerous to gathering knowledge these days. So I do feel that we, we really need to to think again and ensure that, that children particularly are reading and not just going for the easy option of, of turning on a movie or yet another bloody box set or whatever it may be. Yeah, so when did you start reading? Do you well, I started reading comics when I was a kid. Um, so that you know reading is, is kind of addictive <laughs> so you can't go to the bathroom without reading something and if you haven't got a book you'll end up reading the label on the whatever you know the, <laughs> the bottles of cleaning fluid or whatever in the bathroom it, it's an addictive thing um so i think it's important to start it early with children um yeah. So, so I mean, did you learn to read the comics without actually being able to read letters and and words, or well, I guess so. I, well, I, I yeah, a bit of both. But 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 you know, sometimes we think there, there's some kind of lack of depth in reading comics and stuff. Of course, which there, there there's not. I mean, the Japanese have made you know manga comics into an art form, you know, a form of literature. And um, certainly the comics from, from my childhood were, were, were very informative. Um, and above all, they got you into that notion. There was two aspects to it. There's the visualization and there's the words and there's that mixture. Uh, and I, I just found it, when I, if I reflect on that, that, that it was a very important part of getting me you know, into reading more serious stuff. Okay, so what what was your favorite comic? Peanuts? Uh, there was the Dandy and the Beano. There was all these war comics. There was a whole bunch of things back then. I, I think comics then were more important for children. And of course, we used to pass them around, you know, ah, around okay. the group. So it, it was... Um, it was kind of a community effort as well. I, I don't know much about comics today, I must confess. So you're not the... Uh... Iron Man, Spider-Man reader. <laughs> well, yeah, they were around then as well. I mean, you had you had the Superman stuff. You had all of that stuff then, you know, before it became this great big box office thing, uh, this brand. There were just comics then. You know, nobody was trying to bring more meaning to it by putting it on the big screen and making billions of dollars out of it at that point. Um, but yeah, they, they all existed. And uh, what are you reading now? Is it fiction or non-fiction stuff? I mean, you say you really love to read. Yeah, I mean, I read, uh, uh, I read a lot of biographies. Uh, and I like to mix you know, business books with, uh, <coughs> with, with, with fiction and with biography, that kind of stuff. You know, people always talk about business books. I don't think really we've got a right to read business books unless we read other books at the same time. You know, there's a context to life, which is represented out there. And it's not necessarily literature. It's, 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 you know, books about whatever. 
that, that gives you a greater context inside of which to read business books. Uh-huh. And I think perhaps more managers could, could read around topics rather than just read a topic. Um, so I, I always recommend to people, if you're going to read, by all means, read the latest book on strategy or on innovation or whatever, but make sure you're reading something else in parallel that's going to kind of give you this cross-fertilization and this broader understanding of both. Yeah, I, I get the feeling there. Let's see if I can uh, bring it out <laughs> in this interview. <laughs> so, because I know I talk a lot that I listen to Tim Ferriss, not so much lately as I do my own podcast, but he's all had a hard time to read fiction books, right? He was like the nonfiction, absorptive strategy, innovation, all the late. And you say like, read both. I, I do the same. Um, and you said, you hope we, we don't lose this reading books capacity as human beings. And uh, not too long ago, ha- about half a year ago, did speed reading from Jim Quick. I don't know. It's, it's definitely, yeah, yeah, I know the name. So, you know, the name, uh, mm-hmm. he makes it really fun to learn to read fast. Um, unfortunately I go back and up and down. I haven't figured out to read fast on the Kindle, but it's also for me, it's like business stuff I should read in the morning or during the day. And I love to read the fantasy stuff in the evening, kind of to dull my brain and just to not have. So when is your reading time? Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes it's reading on demand. <laughs> you have to read some stuff. But no, I, I read mostly before I go to bed. Okay. So you're not getting no, too active in your brain if you read some strategy or upsetting thoughts? No, 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 that, that's okay. I, I tend to, to, to read mostly, you know, in the, in the evening, that time of day. And, you know, I go back and forth to books. Um, you know, some books you're going to read, you know, the entire thing, and you can't understand it unless you read the entire thing. Now, most business books are not read the entire way through. And, you know, people tend to feel guilty about that. Well, you don't have to. You, you know, you, if you buy a business book and you get one good idea that's then supported by or amplified by something else you read somewhere else, you know, that makes that experience worthwhile. Okay. Um, so, you know, I'm not somebody who says you have to finish everything you start. I mean, I, you know, I have two or three different books going on at the same time. Uh, and that's okay. I mean, I, you know, it's a matter of like, oh, I've got to finish it. And that's fine. If you're reading a, a great novel or something, then of course you've got to finish it. But, but business books are, you know, it's a lot of, most business books, there's a lot of padding in there. And there's, there's always a couple of really good ideas hanging around somewhere. And it's a matter of trying to unearth them. Yeah. Okay. So are you reading on the Kindle or physical? Is there a difference for you? Both, both, both. Mostly, mostly physical books. Oh, why? Because of the physical aspect? I, or? I just like them. I, yeah, I just like, I just like okay. the touch and feel of a book. Then uh, let's jump over and to your... There's evidence that you've read it. You know what I mean? It kind of gets <laughs> dirty. And it's, you know, the Kindle is just like, oh my God, you know. It, it tells me I've read it, but I haven't left any finger marks on it. <laughs> so it doesn't have like the um, donkey ears. I don't know if that's the right Yeah, right. That's right. That's right. Do you say those in English? Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, Islon, yeah. It's the typical yeah, you know. German word where you put like, yeah. flip the corner to know where you were. Don't do that That's with it. your Kindle. <laughs> it might not work anymore. I've seen it happen though. <laughs> um, so, 
I, I got a little bit of a glimpse of why did you write your book? Because you wanted to spread your well, experience. I, uh, well, I, yeah, I mean, you know, experience can be applied to, to, to different levels and different people and different parts of organizational life. And I just thought the best use of my time was to, was to initially at least write a book for young people uh, to give them some better idea of what it's like to work in a, in, in a large organization, in a professional job. Now, why is that more important than ever? Well, it's, it, I think it's really important today because, you know, organizations have become very adept at something called employer branding. So there is, you know, there's, a, <laughs> there's departments in companies who are employed to tell you what a great place it is to work. Yes. You know, as if they were selling you a car or as if they were selling you washing up liquid or whatever. <laughs> Here's this wonderful place to work. And then at the same time, if we look at, at, at the employee engagement scores around the world, they've never been lower. People have never been less engaged at work. So on the one hand, you've got this, this great hoo-ha about, you know, what a wonderful organization we are. And here's our, here's our you know, high fidelity color brochure. Here's our website. And we've got these wonderful values. And you're going to have a great time here. And go on LinkedIn and you'll see our CEO with no tie on. And teams are high-fiving each other. And my God, it looks amazing. Uh, and then you get there. And you might discover, well, it's not really like that at all. So I just wanted to to sensitize younger people um, yeah. to the fact that starting out in a professional career is very important that you do it you do it well, because your your experience of your first couple of years is going to stay with you, i.e., your 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 relationship with, with the person you work for, your boss, how you fit into a team how you start to understand how organizations function. And I didn't think there was enough written about that in, let me just try this, in an authentic way. And, and what I tried to write was something that, that, that that's pretty much straight from the gut. Well, I wrote it in 90 days, so it had to be. <laughs> okay, you see, yeah. And that's definitely one thing I have to say. It's very authentic uh, for me. And I can... Uh... I can understand a lot. So I don't know how I would have reacted getting this book 20 years ago, right? Being close to finishing school, uh, you know, planning to look for a job. Um, with the experience I have now, it's resonating a lot. So I, I do understand a lot of these things you say. Sure. And I'm very, very happy that you were writing it that way. So well, you said you wrote it in 90 days. You're not the first one. It's like three people I talked to, they, they did the same as you, right? Sure. Or actually faster. One was writing it in three weeks, a whole fiction book uh, about the world and, you know, femininity and, and, and another one also like 90 days, 100 days. Okay. But where, how was that download working for you? Like, I mean, 90 days, it seems like fast for writing a book. Uh yeah, I mean, you have to have a structure, you have to have a commitment, you have to have a, a writing agenda. Um, so I, I did. I mean, I, I'm not usually the most structured person in the world, <laughs> but um, 
I think I was surprised. I think most people would be surprised if they sat down and tried to write something um, about what actually appears in, you know, in front of you. You know, I was thinking like, oh my God, you know, how am I going to write this, this, this chapter on well-being? I'm not a professional uh, health practitioner. And it was funny, I was talking to the publisher about it, and I'd intended to interview some people from that area. And uh, it didn't, the time, the time frame didn't work out. So she just said, well, just write it based on your own experience, which I did. And, you know, when I, when I look back at that, I don't, you know, that's, that actually puts you under a certain amount of pressure to produce something. And uh, lo and behold, that ain't a bad thing to experience now and again. Um, and, and we talked a little bit earlier about authenticity. Uh, and, and that kind of pressure does pull something out of you that's, 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 that's real. That, that you know, you have nowhere else to go, so you have to tell the story as it was. You're not relying on any theory. You're not relying on somebody else's input. You've just got the blank page and your own experiences. And it forces you to think about, you know, the people you've met, the work you've done, uh, and indeed, you know, for the well-being thing, the, the, you know, the, the, the level of stress and suffering that you've witnessed. Okay. Um, I just something popped up in my mind and I go with it, intuition. Um, being so honest on, on this blank page because of you didn't have the chance to interview the people was that causing some anxiety inside you being afraid of like, can I really write that? What is coming out of my finger or, or how did Don't you write? Really, actually, did you write with a pencil or on the computer? Bit of both. Uh, bit of both. Um, no, it, it wasn't really anxiety. I mean, I knew I could put something down. <laughs> if there was any anxiety, it was about, is this thing going to be worth reading? You know, is there, is there any quality to it or is it just more of the same? And, um, you know, I think one guiding light for me in writing this book was, please, it's not going to be more of the same. It's got to be something different. I don't want to write a book for people starting out in professional organizations and tell them that, you know, be nice to your boss, keep your nose clean. You might get a promotion after two years, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> oh, you don't. You don't. No. I, well, I tried I that. I, I was just pushed out. And there you go. And lots of people, lots of people have that experience. So I wanted to, to sensitize them to that experience. And I wanted to write in a language that, that hopefully they, they would, that would resonate with. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I meant more like the anxiety. I was just thinking like, or, or, or angst or whatever you want to say that you say it in such an authentic way that people will feel offended and they kind of, you know, backlash at you kind of. Well, no, I, I, you know, the, the idea of writing a book is not to solve anybody's problem. The idea of writing a book is to start a conversation. And what kind of conversation? Well, a conversation with yourself mm. or a conversation with somebody like me or a conversation with that coach you're working with over there. Um, you know, too many people think books are about solutions. They're not. They're, they're about disruption. They're about bringing a different lens or a different angle to a topic and making you think about that and maybe challenging your, your, your either your experience 
or your 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 mindset uh, about the topic in question. So I always think about it like that. You know, it's it's um, it's a conversation starter. It's not a conversation finisher. Okay, super. Yeah, I mean that definitely helps um, for the people which want to um, start reading your book um, to have that in mind, right? You you read a book differently when you know why the author was writing it. Yeah. Because sure. you get to comp- I mean, it. Uh, now we've been talking about um, videos and all that stuff instead of reading a book. I know, and, and you also have uh, chapters about communication and culture. I was just thinking, like, when you read and it's on a piece of paper, which is nice and physical, and there's no pictures or anything, and you don't hear the person talk. Uh, I know that when you send SMS or email, it can be a lot of times misunderstood because of how the person uh, what is the state the person is reading it is in not necessarily how the person felt when he was writing it so how do you see that with a book uh, is there a difference to an sms or email when when you write like this can you convert the information differently yeah i mean it's you know an sms or an email is an immediate you know usually requires an immediate response or immediate decision. This doesn't require anything except to be able to absorb some of the stuff, whether it fits into your view of the world or not. Uh, you know, some people will read some of this thing and say, no, that's not my experience at all. And others will go, oh yeah, that, that is my experience. And between those two points is the point of, 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 of meaning for, for whoever might read it. Okay. You're not going to, nobody is going to write something that resonates with everybody. But but um, by, by taking the approach I, I think I took here, I just wanted to make sure it resonated for me in a very real, authentic way. And then hopefully that bounces back to the reader and engages them in this in this conversation. Like I say, oh. just this word, this conversation. Yeah. So I have some questions here. I mean, the... Um... Let's go into the book now, because that's what we agreed. All right. Uh, now, now the people have the background a bit, and you know, what was your motivation to write it? So, I just go like, you know, after my notes from the book, and I went sure, in sure, a Kindle sure. from A to Z, right? Because it's it's not a physical book; I can just flip through. Um, the biggest challenge you see for a newly, you know, a newly educated person or a new start in a new business. Could be young. I mean, could also be fifty years old. When I read it, I sure. have the feeling it, it helps also older. Uh, what, what are the biggest challenges when when you go to that interview or when you look for that new job and you say, "Okay, either I'm just finished studying, or I'm fifteen and don't want to study because it's not for me. I want to learn in the real world, or I'm stuck in a job and I want to find something new." What are those challenges? Right. Well, I mean, there's two parts to it. There's you as a person. And there's the, the organization or group or team or whatever you're going to join. Um, as an individual, I think it's very, very important for every one of us to engage in some kind of, of um, reflection about ourselves. You know, who are we? What are we good at? Where are we going? Not just professionally, but in life. You know, in general, what's, what's, what's that sense of, of life? 
what do we want to accomplish um, who do we want to be all of those things should be should be considered now when you get to a certain age it's easier to consider those because you've got <laughs> you've got a history you can bounce back on and say oh my god you know did i really do that and for a younger person <laughs> it's a little bit more different it's a little bit more difficult but but young people can can you know really little think a little bit about um you know what are they really good at and and where might that fit into organizational life now you might think that that's quite obvious but you'd be astonished and i think i've, I've always been astonished to find people doing jobs that they weren't really cut out to do but that they got stuck in they started earning some money but they never really liked um, and when that happens to you, you tend to run out of steam at some point. And you know what? I, I've done a lot of work with organizations, um, particularly with, with 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 their with their newly employed managers or potential managers who have joined maybe one or two years ago, uh, and look at this whole concept of internal mobility. You know, if you get it right first time, it's pretty cool. But most people join an organization in marketing or, or whatever, and they think, this is what I want to do. And then after a year of doing it, they go, oh, my God, this is not what I want to do at all. Now, how do I get out of it? And I think too many organizations don't provide a structured opportunity for people to revisit early bad decisions. And you end up with people being stuck in a situation where they feel they're not really contributing, they're not learning. They're getting by, but there's no no mechanism for them to 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 move sideways or up or down or or anything without causing a lot of you know stress and 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 problems for themselves and others. So I think the the, the idea of internal mobility is um, is very very important. So for the individual, I, I think that there's there's you know we all talk about the 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 um, the holy grail of, of self-awareness. You know, am I aware of my impact on other people? Um, am I aware of really what I'm good at? Or do I just think I'm good at this? I mean, you know, I, I went through this myself. I did a master's degree in artificial intelligence, which was a lot of mathematics back in the day. Uh, I hadn't even done the most the most rudimentary mathematics at school. My first examination in mathematics was at master's degree level. <laughs> oh. anyway, it freaking killed me. And it wasn't until years later I asked myself, why did I do that? Why did I do that? And, and I meet people in organizations every day in a position where they ask themselves the question, well, why am I here? You know, I, I thought, you know, this looked attractive, but now I find out, you know, it's not something that that resonates with me to the degree I thought it might because they may have looked at it from a perspective of well I'm earning good money or I've got a great title or you know the chances for promotion are great but at the next level down they're thinking oh my god this is not this is not really working for me at all I think the other aspect is is how do you choose an organization how do you fit into a team all of that stuff and uh you know, culture is paramount. Um, organizations make all kinds of claims about their culture, you know. Uh, and if you look at, at, at the, 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 the values, um, fashion that we've had now for, for a good many years, pretty much every organization is, is claiming the, the same values. 
You know, if you don't see integrity, innovation, teamwork on a piece of paper somewhere in 99% of organizations, well, you know, you're, you're kind of, what is this? Why are these things missing? The fact is that I would say in most organizations, and the research shows that, top management don't really spend much time either understanding them, promoting them, living them, or bringing them to life inside of an organization. So whilst they're, they're pushed out there by the employer branding people, the reality of the everyday experience in the company may not reflect what's written on the paper or shown on the website. Okay, so how is that? Um, you know, I've been reading uh, in the book, but but do you have an example? I mean, for someone which is listening and 20 years old or 25 years old might not really understand these cultures and values. Um, and you talked about innovation, right, and integrity and all these things. Uh, and and now with, with the corona uh, and security we have all around the world, and it's for years when I look back. I'm not surprised I didn't find a job in the last 10 years because something was not resonating with me how we are working today or, or the message many companies give. So do you have any, do you have any positive and negative um, example from your experiences? Like how, how can a company put the values or the culture the right way? And how can you as a, a newbie or an old guy which wants to change and finally be in a company where... <laughs> where he works for what he believes the company is standing for is really going to happen. How you have some examples there? Well, uh, you know, I think number one, you know, why is this a problem? Um, most business people go to, I don't know, they study finance or engineering, they do MBAs or whatever. And most organizations employ them for one reason, and that is to spit out as big a profit as possible in the shortest possible time scale. That's what organizations have traditionally been about. And if you go back to the, to the great statement of Milton Friedman many years ago, he, he said very clearly, you know, the Chicago School of Economics, um, the only responsibility an organization has, it's to its shareholders. So what he was saying is that organizations and companies have no responsibility to society. And, and all of what we've experienced since, let's say, put it this way, since the 1970s and earlier was built on that premise. That was the underlying economics of, of, of company life. Now, as things progressed over the last 40 years, companies started thinking like, well, maybe we should get our people more interested in what they're doing. And somebody talks about, well, you know, the thing called culture, and then we represent that through, through this mission, vision, value statement. Now, most organizations have something like that, but, you know, to what degree have these things been implemented? And what does implemented mean? Well, if you're, if you're a board of directors of a large organization and you sit down three times a week or three times a month or whatever it is to talk about the business, how much time are you spending on this stuff? Well, I, I do quote a study in the book that says, well, not very much at all. <laughs> <laughs> really, not very much at all. To what extent is somebody who's got a degree in mechanical engineering or financial accounting, how might that person actually stand up 
before a thousand people and explain the meaning of an opaque word like values. <laughs> <laughs> it ain't easy, right? It ain't easy. And I think we've, we've almost hindered organizations by bringing these complex concepts from anthropology and dumping them in front of these people and saying, here you go, use these things. Now, what we see an awful lot of is we, we see it at big conferences. We see the CEO coming out once a year, pulling the values out of a box and saying, oh, you know, we really value all our people and we love our people and our people are our greatest asset, etc." And then all this stuff goes back in the box at the end of the conference, not to be revisited for another year. Yeah. Okay. Can we blame people for that? I don't think so. I, I just think that the, the, the disconnect between the, the economic priorities and the, 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 the um, what's the word I want to use, the, the, the softer aspects of getting people to perform don't always connect. Yeah, they don't always connect in the way that we'd like them to connect. Okay, do you have a good example? What, what company, is, is there actually, let's, let's put it different. Is there a difference between like super small companies, like five, 10 employees to medium-sized companies to large or triple XL companies with values and culture uh, of control or top management actually being interested or is it throughout the um, yeah, <laughs> working world the oh, same? For, for, a very, for a very small company, you know, it, it, it's where you know everybody, you know, it, it's, it's a very different game. But if you've got a company of 100,000 people and as a, as a senior manager, you're trying to influence the micro behaviors of those people on an ongoing basis every day. That's where these things come into play. That's where you can, you know, you demand integrity. You, you, you foster innovation, et cetera, et cetera. What's missing very often is, well, if a company says, we're, you know, we are dedicated to innovation. Well, okay, how do you check that? Well, you might check it by looking at how much they're investing in innovation. You might check that by, by looking at the, the, the average age of their products or services. There, there are ways to look at this. There are ways to actually deep dive into, in, into these uh, statements and promises. That's what, that's what values are. They're promises, you know. If I read a value statement that says, we're a very purpose-driven company that values society, values our employees, you know, promotes on performance, etc., I have every reason to go into that company and expect that, uh, expect that to be the case. And if I go in and I find that's not the case, well, then something is happening between the the boardroom and the employee that 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 um, that needs to be looked at. Let's put it that way. <laughs> now, this is a I always you know I I'm always astonished at, at the complexity of this, and and you know I think a good many managers leave it um, <laughs> don't really bother with it until there's a problem. Okay, I mean, what I've realized in in the work I had, these missions and wishes and uh, statements and core values and all these things, many times when I actually mentioned it as an employee and said, hey, but this is not what I see. And this is just fake. People get pissed off and they get really, they feel attacked sure. because they identify themselves. This is what we stand for, but I don't see it. No. 
Well, you know, a lot of people don't see it and, and, and therein lies the problem. Now, how do you measure this? Well, the only measure that we see at the moment that's, that's got any kind of structure to it is, is the employee engagement surveys. <laughs> now, they're out there. They're one way of getting some kind of a feel. But to what extent are they taken uh, seriously? You know, to what extent will they affect the, the promotion possibilities of manager A, B, or C? To what extent are they connected to productivity? Uh, all of that stuff. Uh, and a great deal of money and a great deal of time is invested in, in, in employee engagement surveys. Um, and I don't think we always see the payback on that. I don't think we always see the, the investment in learning from employee engagements um, surveys to the extent that we could. Um, now, there, there are great, uh, the, the company Unilever with, with a um, CEO called Paul Pullman, um, there was a company that was quite an exemplar in, in this whole area. I mean, his strategy encompassed also um, the reduction of, 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 of the company's carbon footprint. And, and he built that into the, the strategy of the organization. So, you know, and, and I'm paraphrasing now, but, you know, he wanted to really double growth and uh, half the, cut in half the, the carbon footprint at the same time and do that in, in, as part of a greater strategy. So that one thing wasn't more important than the other. You had to do both. So you had a balance. Now, that's a great example of really purposeful values in action, very publicly in a large organization. And, and it's been a great success and it, it's held up as being a great example, uh, exemplar uh, to this day, and, and it's of course an ongoing process. Other companies see their their social responsibility or their responsibilities to 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 the planet in general has has been, you know, a nice to have thing that we'll do in the last uh, in the last hour of the day or the last day of the year or whatever. It simply doesn't have the the headspace or the uh, attention uh, of the management team in the same way. Okay, I have I jump a bit back to to the innovation part because that's what I did a master in, and I'm I'm really dumbfolded many many times, you know, about innovation. I looked for two years for a job with innovation, and I couldn't get anything. All right, guys, I have all the skills, I have the personality traits for someone which is creative on innovation, but I don't get the jobs. And as you said, innovation stands all the time really forefront and I'm just dumb for like how comes they don't even get me for an interview uh, when I read your book it's definitely they don't understand their own values and I don't understand what what innovation really means but how can a company be really innovative and creative in the, in the culture now you have you have an experience around the world and many many different companies so where do you see does it really work with creativity and innovation what kind of culture or management style or whatever it is, does a company well, have to have? Where does innovation happen? Um, most innovation happens on the periphery of an organization, where the organization meets the world. 
That's the, that's the kind of bleeding edge of innovation. So if you, if you want to see what's, what's, well, what the possibilities are for your products or services, that's the place to look. Too many organizations try to formalize this, this idea of, 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 of innovation and, and bring together you know, 25 people around the table once a year <coughs> and do presentations and talk about ideas. But I think that that innovation should be an ongoing process and it should be an outside-in process. And, you know, I, the, the, the thing today is, Oliver, is that we have the technology to engage all members of our workforces on a 24-hour, 365 days per year basis. We can have people bringing stuff to the attention of others and cross-fertilization methodology that's semi-structured but only semi-structured if you structure it too much you're going to kill it you know some organizations are like we'll give you a new bmw for the best idea of the year <laughs> you know what i mean instead of fishing around you know what what worked in the factory in china that might work in the factory outside of london what piece of technology we got in Germany that might work over there in Silicon Valley and vice versa. So how do you, how do you, you know, the ecosystem is, is the, is the kind of the sexy word for all of this. But what astonishes me is that years ago, that would have been very difficult to manage. Today, we have, uh, we have the information systems. We have the, the online system that can manage all of that. And then having a person running that, who is like you said, you know, in themselves creative, in themselves a great facilitator of, of all of this, and, and can combine stuff and bring it together. Yeah, it's, um, are you talking now for an international organization or cross uh, industries and cross organizations with um, cross fertilization? Both, I mean, there's, 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 there's lots of, of, of conglomerates out there who will take one piece of, of technology or, or whatever from area A and apply it in area B. Okay. So but it would also... Before. And then there's others out there just learning, learning from the world. I mean, years ago, Cisco, the telecoms company, you know, they had built wonderful relationships with, with kids in their garages in California making new products. Yeah. And then, you know, after, uh, you know, if your product then looked pretty good, they, they might make you an offer or bring you in or, or do something with you. But of course, they became the experts on all of these kids in garages developing new tiny pieces of technology. And then you had this organization that was in a position to to um, exploit it and combine it and do all of that stuff that these people as individuals couldn't do. You see stuff today in, in the fintech area happening as well. You know, many banks will, will have connections to maybe a hundred different fintechs. And they're, they're, they're working with them and trying to figure out, is there something here that we need or that we can take and scale? So you need that kind of ecosystem. <coughs> um, a, a soft formal structure, but a very informal set of relationships to drive that. Now that's, you know, we're, we're getting a little bit away from the, from, 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 from the point, but that's, that would be, if, if, you're, if you're the CEO of an organization and you say to me, I really value innovation, and I said, well, show me how that works. And you said, that's how it works. Then I said, well, that sounds pretty good. Yeah. Okay. Uh, um, I have another point in my head. Let's see what you say to it. 
for my master thesis, I realized um, fear or risk, um, risk taking or risk aversion is a big uh, factor for, for driving, let's say, radical innovation or breakthrough innovation. I mean, the little, you know, uh, how you call it, the small innovation steps many can do, but how do you see, you talked a bit about risk and, and um, you're a risk taker, right? <laughs> and you tried a lot of other things, but how do you see risk playing a role in the innovation part when you look at the management style? Spending money or being open and, you know, like, like Tesla, being open and give all the patents out for free for everyone to use. Well, I think that that's the way the world is going. You know, it all started with, 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 with what was that, the, the Unix or the build on Unix by, by our friends in Finland years ago where they opened where software, you know, everything was, was laid out there. Um, I think um, what we're seeing in the world today is less big bets and, and lots of smaller bets. Um, so, you know, the, the world being as it is and, and the rate of change that's going on out there, uh, not too many people are making a massive bet on this that or the other on this acquisition they're making lots of small bets lots of experimentation and and you know hoping that that maybe two or three of out of a hundred of these things work out um i think in the past perhaps there was, there was a greater appetite for big acquisitions or big investments in in new technologies that that, that were game-changing um, and of course, the, you know, that wasn't always a bad thing. You know, somebody had to invest in the railways. Somebody had to invest in telephones. Somebody had to make huge bets on, on, on microchips in the 60s and 70s, all of that kind of stuff. Um, but I think today there's certainly a nervousness out there about, and there's a realization that there's lots of small ideas out there that can be built on. And if you get to them early enough, and if you combine enough of them, it might be an easier way to, to great success than, than, than the big bet. Okay, I, I can see. Yeah, that's also what I what I read is like risk. If you're risk averse, you won't take any risk. But if you're a risk taker in some degree, you you spread the risk. I mean, you manage the risk. It's risk management, and that's what you just explained. It's like betting on a lot of small ideas, and a few of them will raise to. to well, right, something. and and if you want to engage your your employees, and you want to engage the people at the periphery. And you want to you want to have an organization that really values innovation, well then that's part of that game. You're not going to contact the company about your next big acquisition, but you can contact everybody in the company about well you know what what's going on out there outside the door that we don't know about. What's happening with customers? Give us this feedback. Okay, so let's see if I can tie that in into what I read in the book. Um, there's definitely management style, like your team boss or manager. It's you're as an employee being in such a position and it's the culture. Um, what should you look for if you're a creative person like you and me, which just, you know, combines so many things around and to something new, you knew you go. Yeah. You're at work. What are the qualities of a manager you look for? What are the qualities or the communication of the company about values and so on. Well, it's very, I mean, it's very simple. What you want in a manager is, is you want somebody who asks you questions rather than gives you commands. You want somebody to say, what do you think? Rather than, oh, here's the answer. And when you've got somebody like that, it, it's a great experience to have somebody in a management leadership position 
who consults with people, who's inquisitive, who's interested in your experience, who can bring the team together and say, look guys, um, we really need to upgrade here, here, or here. What do you think? What are the customers saying? Instead of somebody who's saying, this is what we need to do next. That just kills everything. Um, and that, that's a key differentiator. And that's a key differentiator, whether it's innovation or anything else in a company. That's and management. I mean, and then for the company? Management. That's when, leadership. So, yeah. When you look at the company as an organization, small, big, or triple XL, is there something? It doesn't matter. The, the days of telling people what to do are pretty much over. Okay. Even in the military. And triple what can you as a, uh, you as an employee what can you do to you know to get the best out of it in that situation you can pick the right bloody manager to work for <laughs> <laughs> okay let's say you <laughs> but you that's have one of the, <laughs> it's serious that's one of the things you need to you need to be you need to get a feel for you know you need to get a feel for what is this person like yeah okay. this person going to give me you know people talk about freedom You know, freedom is a space that exists between you and the person who's, who's, who's supervising you. And how much freedom does that person create? And if you find that it's, 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 it's not very much at all, then you may want to reconsider. And that's, that's not just an innovation thing. That's a, that's a performance issue. That's a happiness issue. That's a lack of stress issue. That, that covers a lot of stuff. And, you know, for years we've been coaching managers around, uh, How do you ask the right questions <laughs> and get the best out of a group of people rather than you coming along and, 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 and saying, well, I'm the boss and therefore, you know, I need, to, I need to be able to tell these guys what to do. There might have been a time when that actually was applicable. It's not anymore. Um, I liked some of your advice in the book. Sorry, I need to... <coughs> <clears throat> coughing a bit it's not cool wind so <laughs> just a dry throat from talking so much or listening in this case uh i saw let's let's see i have, I have so many great advices from the book uh, let's say you go to the company you you talk about you have been talking about also in this interview about the, these high gloss magazines linkedin whatever social media and you're like wow this is great i want to work at coke because coca-cola gives you the You don't talk about Coke. I just have it from other yeah, podcasts yeah. and other, where, where they have all these commercials. You have the feeling if you drink Coca-Cola, you have the greatest life and you have social interaction, you have fun. But actually, we all know sugar and this kind of processed food kills our health. But you get this experience and then you're like, I want to work for Coca-Cola because they represent fun and all that stuff. That's like the high gloss, as you say, no slips and whatever, high five. And, and now you have applied for a job and you got called in and, and you nicely put out what you can do as a, you know, newbie. Uh, I would never have thought of it if not having someone telling me that, Hey, you go for a job and you, you talk about the first step in the company. Yes. It's the glossy magazine, but you go into the reception. When do you do that? And what are you doing when you get there and come out of well, the interview? I always, uh, you know, I, I, I've got a bit of a fetish about receptions. <laughs> when, I, when I walk into a company, I, I always check out the reception. 
because you know there was a, a famous German car company that once upon a time said they had 27 engineers working on the door handle <laughs> of the car. And I thought, why would they have 27 engineers working on the door handle? Because it's the first thing you touch. So that gives you your first experience of the car. Now, reception in an organization is the first thing you touch, no matter who you are. Whether you're a customer coming in, whether you're somebody applying for a job, whether whatever reason, it's the first thing you touch. If that experience is not positive, you are getting a signal from somewhere in the organization that there is a disconnect. Yeah? Now, if the, uh, on the other hand, um, uh, it's a very positive experience, guess what? You're seeing the end point of a process that works. And if that process works, well, then you can start to think, well, maybe the other processes around here work as well. Now, I've been, I walk into all kinds of receptions um, and I'm a consultant. So, you know, my, I expect to be kept waiting. You know, my consultant DNA is attuned to sitting around and looking at stuff. So I know there's all kinds of stuff. I mean, as recently as last year, I walked into a reception of a company in Hamburg and I said to the receptionist, could you give me the uh, Wi-Fi password? And she said to me, we don't have any Wi-Fi. <laughs> I was like, in 2019, a tech company doesn't have Wi-Fi in their reception? And I was like, that then set me, you know, my thoughts like, wow, what the hell is wrong with that? And I, you know, I, I've walked into all, I've walked into receptions that are really warm and welcoming. Uh, I, I went to a reception in Sweden last year. That was so cool. It had people working in reception, so it had stand-up desks, and you had to kind of go through all of that to get to the actual reception, and to meet somebody there. So you, you, what they were doing was they were using the reception as a, almost as a marketing tool, you know. This is our reception. It's a really cool place to be. Guess what the rest of our company is like? And I, you know, I, I, <laughs> I think if you, if you can get your reception right and genuinely right, not just make up, genuinely right, <laughs> you're really onto something uh, uh, concerning the culture of an organization. Now, I always say to people, you know, when you go for an interview or something, just sit in reception and, and observe what's going on. How do people talk to each other? Um, pick up the annual report. You know, when you go for an interview, nobody expects you to have looked at the annual report. You know why? <laughs> because they won't have looked at it themselves. So, so if you've got something out of there and you can go, well, you know, I read in your annual report that you blah, blah, blah. And they're like, oh my God, I didn't know that. This person is very diligent. Um, there's lots to be learned. Uh, you know, it's this idea of sniffing the air. Okay, and get like the first feeling. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, how do people interact with each other? You know, can you identify the, the big bosses from the non-big bosses? You know, do people come to attention when, when this person arrives or, or whatever? You know, th that feeling, is, is there some standard of, um, um, is there some standard of performance also in something as, as you know, 
as, as let's put it this way, I mean, it's a stupid thing to say, but as unimportant in the organization as reception. Look, of course, it's an important thing. You know the point I'm trying to make. Yeah. Um, how quickly can you get in? You know, do you have to fill out triplicate forms? Do they, you know, do you have to tick the terms and conditions? Do you have to hand over your, I've had to hand over passports, all kinds of stuff to get into companies, right? And they make it really difficult. Um, some make it really easy to get in. So is access easy or are you made to feel like, my God, they think I'm going to steal their bloody technology or whatever, you know, it's so hard to get in here. Uh, you know, if you've been there 10 times, is your name in the computer or do they start the process all over again? And uh, yeah. you know, to this day, people haven't mastered that. I remember going to a, a great company in Bangalore in India a few years ago. There was 25 of us in the group. It took us about uh, four or five minutes to get in there. Wow. They had a system, systematic way of photographing, issuing name tags, etc. Boom, boom, boom. It was important for them to to show the, you know, they, they, they thought about this. And I could take you to, to companies in, in Europe where it's, you know, it's, you know, you're still looked at like, uh, what do you want? Well, why, why do you think is that? Is there some kind of a fear of stealing important information and then selling it and using it against you or? No, I, I think it's because, because, you know, I think you have to regard all parts of the organization as being equally important. So, you know, the, 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 the man or woman in reception, the security guy, all of these people have to be part of the, the greater game. Yeah. Um, and, and as a leader, you have to include all of them in there and you, you, and you have to treat them in a certain way and you have to, you have to, you have to show and demonstrate that their job is as important as anybody else's. And if you do that, um, you'll get the rewards. You know, it goes, there's a story about President Kennedy when he visited uh, Cape Canaveral, you know, during the 60s, during the moon launches, and he talked to a cleaner, and he didn't know he was a cleaner, and he said, you know, what do you do here? And the cleaner said, well, I work here as a cleaner, and I'm helping put a man on the moon. So the cleaner was connected to the to the final destination, yeah? So, you know, if you can get everybody um, on board, and it, it's not hard. I mean, I, I know some wonderful people and CEOs who will walk into their own receptions and they'll spend time and they'll, they'll, they'll talk to the receptionist and, and they, they want to get a feel. They're interested in the feel of the company. And, you know, what are people experiencing in this organization? And that's a great place to find out. Other huh? places, you reception, you may as well be in a, in a church, you know, or you may as well be in a morgue. It's like somebody sitting there, you know, who are you? What do you want? Who are you? Where are you parked? Uh, oh, you can't park there. Oh, I need your passport. Uh, we need to take, you know, a mug shot of you. Sit there and somebody will come for you. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh... Now I completely lost my my, <laughs> my question here, but but I I do definitely see your point, and um, oh yeah, it comes up in mind again. It's it's basically general 
way of looking at life. I mean, that's what we learn. That's what I've been reading a lot lately. Like, you know, you want to be a good person, you want to grow and stuff like that. Then treat everyone equal. And I guess this well, is it's, also it's, an organization. As, I just think it, it's, it's an attitude of leadership. That, that, that you're, you know, if you're the CEO, your, your leadership doesn't stop with the board members. It permeates the entire organization. So why can't you take what's great about your leadership and make sure that everybody has the opportunity to benefit for, from that? Um, it may seem like, like a, um, a pretty small point, but I don't think it is. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the job of leaders is, is, to, is to bring a bunch of people with them, to create some kind of purpose that everybody can, can kind of go with, and then to communicate that relentlessly. But, you know, we, we, we don't see that, uh, I think, in enough places. And don't get me wrong, there's lots of excellent, outstanding people who can do this and do it every day. Now I have, the question popped up again. <laughs> you see, intuition, um, and that's my ADHD brain, is like I'm afraid that I'm losing the thought I have and then <laughs> I talk very fast. But it pops up again if it's important. Cultures, again, you, you've been traveling around the world from China to the US, Europe, all around Europe, we have different ways of, of being, right? We have, uh, what is it, Gerd Hofstedt, which did the power yeah. differences and whatever not. Yeah. Do you see, I mean, I've learned a lot because I have had a class in Siemens about it in the introduction, uh, about myself and living in Denmark, my wife in Romania, friends in France, Italy, Spain. I learned a lot about it. Do you see any big factor that can make it easier to work in a team to be equally, you know, like being, as you said, if you have a manager or team lead or just a culture where people ask you a question and coach you, right? Because you want to find out the answer yourself instead of being told what to do and being double-checked. Police, you know, he did this, check. He did this, check. He did this, check. Is there a cultural difference which is favoriting such behavior or... Is that just yeah, cultural I mean, there's, from the business? There's different, there's different experiences in different parts of the world. I mean, in some parts of the world, leadership is still seen from the perspective of, well, this person is in charge and this person really ought to be telling me what to do because my job is to do it and her job is to tell me what it is I'm meant to be doing. And um, this is still out. Is it a bad thing? Well, no, it's simply a different thing. but it's no point going to that part of the world and then suddenly turning into Mr. or Miss Coach and, and try to, 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 to be very, very uh, laissez-faire about, about how you run your management team. You will, and also with individuals, wherever, some people will need, you know, there's lots of, of the great theory of situational management. Some people need this kind of help. Some people need that kind of help. Some people need that. Um, I, I think there's... The, 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 the cultural thing is, is, is very important. Uh, I, I think people need to pay more attention to it. Um, and of course, different economies have different um, uh, situations. Uh, and for in, in some parts of the world, people need to earn money and earn money quickly and, uh, and, and get stuff done. And in other parts of the world, that may not be the case. So, you, you know, you have to deal with the situation from what a cultural, i.e., my expectations are that you as a manager will treat me like this. Um, 
uh, factor and then the economic factor as well that, that in some countries people will come and work for you for six months and then they might get a better offer over here because things are booming in certain parts of the world. There's all of those things to consider. And I don't think it's, 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 it's um, beyond the scope of, 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 of most managers to handle that. Okay, so... The, the real juice happens when you bring these global teams together and get them thinking together and we go back to innovation. That's where you can get great, great ideas from. Yeah, but that's also uh, one of, of, of your chapters talks about is a manager born or is, a, or is he made? And, and that just made me think now from your answer, there's companies which have basically an office in every country around the globe. Uh, and then you're a manager of that, or you're an international person like you traveling around the world. What are the, the skills or mindset one has to have when, let's say you're young, 20, 25 years old, you're out of school, you want to be in an international company because you want to travel, you want to see things. What should you be attentive for when you want to make this a success? I think you should be attentive for learning and observing and not rushing in. Um, I, I, you know, the, 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 uh, the great example, of course, has been China, because so many people have worked in China, Westerners, I mean, over the last 20 years. And, um, you know, people have different attitudes to time. Um, and, you know, people say to me that, oh, my God, you know, I, I worked in China, and after six months, they were driving me crazy because I come from <laughs> Germany, and we always get there on time. And, you know, they're a little bit more laissez-faire about time. And, you know, my German friends, when they go to China, what happens to them? They become more German. Yes. Because by, by interacting in a, in, in a completely different culture, it reinforces the home culture. <laughs> and they become more, let's put it this way, you know, the great German attributes of, of preciseness, uh, punctuality, all of those things become become increased in that way that I see it. Um, is that a bad thing? Of course not. But you just have to be aware of, of, of the subtle differences in helping people get the best out of themselves and in helping the organization get the best out of everybody. And that's a learning process. You, you know, you can learn about it, but until you've had to do it, uh, you, you don't really get the uh, the full flavor. Look, when it comes to this whole idea of diversity of business, whether it's international or whatever, we're very much in our infancy. You know, European companies are still fighting about how many female leaders they might or might not have. I mean, that's as far as we're, you know, as we've come, that gender is still to some extent an issue. Yeah, it shouldn't be. I mean, after my feeling, mm -hmm. what? We know that, but just as an example of how far have we come in this area? Is it yes. a natural thing now? Well, it's becoming more natural to have a female leader but you know in, in all of my years in business it's it, it's been a pretty slow movement upwards for for women to be fully accepted and, and for that not to be oh my god i'm reporting to a woman <laughs> yeah it's like uh, we, men ha are afraid of losing their I don't know. Well, let's not go into the reasoning. No, no, no. Uh, that, you didn't write a book about masculinity and femininity no, at I work. Didn't. Is that your next book? <laughs> no, whatever. <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, I have so many more questions. Um, but I don't know if you should uh, try to close in and then see. Um, yeah, sure. Let's, we make let's, a uh, version two.
and um, to get the rest because I think there's a lot, a lot, a lot of things we can all learn from your book. And I love that you, you wrote it so authentic. Basically, no bullshitting around. You try... Um, yeah, I'm watching a lot to Vision Lakiani from Mind Valley, uh, and he's also very an advocate for no bullshitting. The cultural, you know, landscape we are living in, which is dictating us what we should do, and that's where we didn't get into, you know, self-awareness, inner and external awareness. Yeah, yeah. You know, being a team lead and learning to be a team lead, it's a lot of, you know, taking a culture into yourself and and basically learn to listen to your heart and use your brain to build up the skills when you know wh where you want to go so i think we should have one focusing more of those aspects sure now we learned a lot about you know everything like we, we went criss and cross is there something you want to talk about the well-being for for closing or should we take that in part two well i i, I think the you know the idea of well-being is becoming much more prevalent now in companies uh, you know we, we've had health and safety for for a good many years now and these guys have done a fantastic job and and the, the thing about health and safety is it's 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 um the visible versus the invisible <laughs> safety is visible you know if you're going to climb a wind turbine or whatever you're doing you know there's there's a certain clothing you put on there's a certain harness you can wear there's training that, that tells you how to do all of this so that's visible. You know, safety is visible. Health is not. Uh, and when I when I say health is, I'm talking about how are people feeling inside of organizations. How is the leadership uh, enhancing people's uh, mental health, or how is it detracting from their mental health? All of those things. And I think that's going to become a, a major issue in the years to come, and and rightly so. And I think I give a quote in the book uh, from a guy called Bob Wemula. And he talks about, you know, it's an incredible statement from the Mayo Clinic in the USA. And it goes something like, and I paraphrase, that your direct boss at work is more responsible for your health than your family doctor. Mm. And, you know, when you think in terms like that, it's, oh, my God, that is, you know, that is something that we need to learn more about so how we treat each other at work and then i think that the whole area of stress has become a little bit confusing there's a lot of different theories about stress out there there's a lot of different work and that's a good thing i'm not saying that's a bad thing i'm saying it's a good thing but the only aspect i want to highlight in the book is is uh, around stress is is the idea of control uh, and then that goes back to leadership so if you're my boss um you know how much control do you give me over the, 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 the outputs of my work? Or are you looking over my shoulder every day and saying, no, not like that, like this. So if you take away control from me, if you take away the, 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 um, the power and the energy that I have uh, in the work that I do, well, then that's an extremely stressful situation because it creates this uncertainty that you do something you don't know if it's good enough you don't know if it's going to meet your boss's approval and you might have to do it again so you you, you become you know hesitant you become nervous you become anxious and if you do that for long enough uh, you're going to have a problem so i just focus on that for young people simplify it just see to what degree 
you've got control over your work. Of course, it's never going to be 100%. But are you given the degrees of freedom and the latitude to do your best and have the authority to deliver whatever it is you're meant to deliver without constant interference? And I, you know, I'd leave it at that. Yes, yes, uh, we can go much deeper there. Disease or like sickness is a disease, which is this to not be at ease, right? Um, and uh, it makes a lot of sense. Sure. Stress is the root cause of all sickness, uh, some people say. Um, yes, and then we have the doctor give us some medication. So we have another industry lear- earning a lot of money. <laughs> there you go. So uh, is there any uh, advice you would like to give people besides all the hundreds of advices we got through the last hour? Yeah, engage in learning about what you're going to be doing. Engage in learning about your boss. Engage in learning about the organization. Engage in, you know, how does this team function? You know, think, you know, don't be surprised all of the time. Don't don't go in with expectations that are like, this is going to be wonderful, and then, then you're going to get dragged down. If you read this book, it's, it's, it's going to bring you on a journey that prepares you to engage with a whole uh, bunch of constituencies inside of an organization. And, you know, let's be very clear. Most stuff that happens in organization is, is good. Most people in organizations are good and doing their best. But there are, you know, stresses and strains and challenges and economic uh, challenges that happen. And when that happens, people can become pretty mean and nasty. And, and, and then, therefore, work can become a, a, a very unhappy place. And, and we want to avoid that. Um, so prepare yourself, first of all, and then learn about, you know, who is this person I'm going to be working with? Be, be inquisitive. Be curious. What is this team all about? Ask the right questions uh, at the beginning. Forge relationships. Be generous. Learn how to say no when you have to say no. Um, learn how to move on when you have to move on. Don't sit in a position where you're you're very unhappy for a long time. Um, uh, take it. If, if, if you feel it's not working for you, then do something. Take action uh, and do what you have to do. I feel that too many people kind of retreat into themselves inside of organizations and um, and bear a load that they shouldn't be bearing for, for a period of time that, that, that that's, uh, that's not healthy. And that re- goes back a lot into learn to say no. That's uh, a huge part of it. And it's not just about learning to say no, it's about having this attitude that you, know, you can be an independent operator inside of a team. Team doesn't mean giving up all of your independence. Yeah, it means know, know thyself, kind of. You you also say yeah, be self-aware. Yeah, be self-aware of what it is you want, and we all have different personalities, and some of us can say no more quickly than others. <clears throat> but uh, it, you know, it, when we understand the repercussions of not being able to to express yourself uh, inside of a conflict situation, well, well, then you you will learn maybe albeit slowly, that it, it's something that if you want to advance in your career and you want to have a, a career that's rewarding, at some point, it may be a necessary skill attitude to pick up.
Okay, yeah. Learn to put your borders as well. Uh, that comes with the saying no, and people know what to expect. Otherwise, you will be dumped with fixing problems, firefighting, and you will not That's be so, so happy. Lots of that in the book. Yes, a lot okay, of I'll that in the book. So, um, yes, how do... Um, yeah, the call for action is basically your your <laughs> your advice. And do you have any books you would recommend besides your own book? Um, I like the the books of Michael Gerber. He wrote oh. the E Myth series. Uh, he's an American. I think they're probably the finest books <laughs> on the topic of leadership and organization I've ever read. <laughs> There's a whole series of them. And I would advise anybody to to pick up one, either the original, the E-Myth, um, or any of his books. They're, they're, they're really are works of, of, of art. They're very easy to read and they're absolutely packed full of, of, of great ideas. And I would encourage anybody to read to read Michael Gerber. Um, I think Jim Collins' work on, on level five management, good to great, all of that was, was really, really good. Um, and look, there's a lot of books out there. I mean, uh, I think Bill George's Authentic Leadership was a great book that started a whole movement. Um, and I think all the stuff around agility, uh, I think The Age of Agile, Stephen Denning is one of the best business books ever published. I think he captures um, the idea of agile so well in that book and, and new structures and organizations. So yeah, there, there's plenty out there. Okay, I can and read, see. read, read around it as well. Read newspapers, read the Financial Times, read whatever you want to read. Develop, um, <laughs> read different stuff, and then mix it all in together. Okay, and if people say, "Wow, I liked this talk, and um, I want to know more," where can they reach you? Well, just look at the book. It's got an email on the back. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can find anybody you want these days. <laughs> oh, you know, my name is reasonably unusual so you know track me down <laughs> yeah I just always know Alf for me is a little furry animal with a big nose eating cats there you go. But, yeah. uh, <laughs> I haven't heard that before although that's new <laughs> <laughs> but it's written it's written different it's ALF not uh, PH yeah. alien life form no it's you know, <laughs> exactly. you know where everybody is today in the middle of the virus time everybody's bloody at home right so I'm not hard to track down Oh yeah, what what is your tip for for today's uh, situation? Being home to stay, uh, you know, like in your head and your heart, and not um, in bed with fever. Well, for the first time in human history, we can save humanity by lying in front of the TV. Just don't screw it up, okay? <laughs> okay, so, I, I'm not in front of the TV. Oh, you gotta! I I go running. You know, we, you've got to go out. You, you've got to interact. I mean, you know, different people will adapt differently. I mean, some of us are very lucky that there's people in much worse situations who live in maybe small apartments, have got three or four children. So, you yeah. know, for many of us, it's 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 not that great a, a challenge, but let's think of the people for whom it's a, it's a desperate challenge uh, in this time and with, with the sickness, with the virus, with the economic challenge. Uh, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of people out there that need our help and uh, hopefully governments will will react appropriately. Yeah, I have the feeling it's also a spiritual or humanity, a uh, human challenge because we are disconnected. And, uh, well, 
I'm not, I'm not going there. No, 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 I'm not <laughs> going there. But, you know, many are afraid uh, of connecting with other people. And I could see it. Um, it's, it's very hard for small children, especially. It's a very practical problem to be solved right now. That, that, that's, that's to keep an economy taking over and to try and solve this thing and get people back to their lives. And, and, and to keep them healthy as well. And, you know, I don't envy the decisions politicians have to make. No, but I'm happy for Zoom and similar um, platforms which enable us actually to look into the eye when we talk, um, yeah. which is helping. All these, they're not a substitute. They're, they're a substitute, but they're not a, not a solution for yes. all of this. Okay. okay, let's say we wrap this up. Um, yeah. For everyone... Thank you for, for, for listening to another episode. And please send me your questions you have for Alpha version 2. I'm going to rewrite some questions to, to be able to answer more of the questions I had. Right. And um, I'm looking forward to part 2. Thanks, Oliver. That's great. Great to talk to you. Uh, i got to move on. So I wish you a great day in Denmark and hope to see you guys soon. Okay. See you then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.